Hello and welcome to another special edition, COVID-19 edition of Pipe Batch and Politics. As always, I'm Ben Korb. I'm the Public Affairs Director for the American Society for Biochemistry and Molecular Biology. And today I am joined by Chris Pickett. Chris is the Director of Rescuing Biomedical Research. He is a former staffer here at ASBMB. He's also a recovering scientist and has been doing an awful lot of work helping to support trainees, grad students, postdocs at his job with Rescuing Biomedical Research, and is also going to be hosting a really interesting series later on in the week. So, Chris, say hello. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me, Ben. Hey, no problem. Thanks for joining me. Uh, for those of you that are interested, Chris, you are on Twitter at Chris Pickett 5 Is that correct? That is correct. So, Chris, first question, how are you doing? This is uh, a really strange time, you know, Health-wise, life-wise, how are you? Uh, how are you managing through this moment? Yeah, health-wise, we are all good. But you know, like everyone else, it's kind of day-to-day, week-to-week, trying to figure out what to do uh, with the job, with the kids, with you know, people outside the house, trying to keep up with them. It's uh, you know, difficult, just trying to get by, um, but doing well, well enough so far. Have you found any found any coping skills that work particularly well for you? Um, no. Do you watch? Do you watch uh, a lot? Getting, do you watch a lot on, of The Simpsons? Uh, not so much these days. It's just a little too tired after the kids go to bed. But you know, getting out, we have a dog, and so we get out and have two walks a day and try to get some more outside time. It's beautiful out. Uh, it's a great time to try to be outside and uh, disengage from uh, you know the computer and the ongoing onslaught of news. Yeah, I feel that. So tell me a little bit about rescuing biomedical research, um, just some of the origins of that and kind of what your day job normally would be um, before all of the pandemic. Yeah, so rescuing biomedical research got its foundation about six years ago now when Shirley Tillman, Bruce Alberts, Harold Varmus, and Mark Kirshner published a paper in uh, PNAS, the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science, um, where they really went through some of the systemic flaws in biomedical research and proposed some uh, some recommendations for how to fix them. And shortly after that, they launched this organization, Rescuing Biomedical Research. Uh, and I've been with them since shortly after the launch of the organization. And what we do is we, uh, we really try to come up with creative policies to improve the conduct and culture of biomedical research in the U.S. And so to give some examples of what we've done, so the, the NIH has a, a program to fund young faculty members who are proposing to do innovative work uh, through what they call the New Innovator Program. And this program has been reviewed favorably in the U.S. The the European Union has a similar program that's also been reviewed favorably. uh, And we really pushed for the NIH to expand the number of these awards because we think that they are doing a good job with them. And so we were happy to uh, get NIAID and a couple of other institutes interested in expanding this award. The NIH is doing more to support young uh, investigators. Uh, specifically with their their grants. So that was you know one way that we try to help the workforce. Another way is to um, we push hard on trying to get universities to collect and publish the career outcome information of their PhD alumni. Okay. Uh, you know this is incredibly important because people need to be able to know what they can do with their careers. And this ended up forming the uh, one of the bases of the Coalition for Next Generation Life Sciences, which is a group of universities who are uh, doing this collection and publication um, and keeping each other uh, to task. It really is. I mean, a lot of the work that you all are doing is it's some of the stuff that people have talked about for years and years and years about what needs to happen. And, um, and you're the guy that's finally doing it. Yeah. 
I and we are the people finally doing it. That's right. Um, you know, that's right. There are a lot of recommendations and reports out there about how to improve biomedical research. There's been a lot of resistance. And so we decided to uh, you know, put our shoulders behind it and try to make some of these changes that uh, we think can be really beneficial. And so you are, you know, I, I think it's fair to say that some of your constituents, the people that you are doing this work for are, you know, graduate students and postdocs and, and trainees and the next generation of biomedical research. So, you know, you are uniquely suited and uniquely positioned to be hearing and understanding sort of from those people what it's like now, you know, what we're dealing with in a pandemic, lab shut down, so, you know, university shutdowns, that sort of thing. I was wondering kind of, what are you hearing? What's kind of the sense that you're getting from the people that you talk to about how, what the challenges are for this particular community right now? Yeah, well, right now, I think there is a lot of fear and a lot of uncertainty, which is not unique to biomedical research, but it definitely has its own flavor within biomedical research. So, uh, you know, you and your listeners probably will not be surprised to know that there are a ton of resources on how to be mindful and how to be productive during this pandemic in the era of physical distancing. There are also a lot of resources on how to take care, care of yourself, take it easy on yourself, to not expect 100% productivity. These are all great resources. Um, but like I said, there's also a lot of fear because we will come out of this at some point. Universities will relaunch their uh, research programs. And what does that mean for the people who are actually doing the research? So, uh, you know, about 200 or so universities have voluntarily set, voluntarily said that they're going to extend the tenure clock for all their assistant professors, which is great because it gives them more time to ramp up their uh, research operations again and get everything going. But is that sufficient? Is that sufficient to really overcome what they've endured or even what they've done during this time? Sure. Um, you know, what's the status of graduate students and postdocs? Because these are time-limited positions. Will they get extensions? And what does that mean for incoming classes? Uh, faculty hiring is frozen for a year, maybe maybe more. Um, mm. And then, of course, feeds back into the training population. People wanting these faculty positions are now stacking up. Um, and what do they do? Um, so there is a lot of fear and uncertainty, as I said, about what the future of the biomedical research workforce looks like. And I mean, this is a little bit putting it on the spot, and I apologize for that. But the answers to those questions and those fears, there's not like a central uh, repository for the answers, right? I mean, the NIH is providing guidance, and it's doing the best that it, that it can. And, and the other, you know, the National Science Foundation and the other funding agencies are. But in a lot of ways, each each university has to kind of individually figure it out. Is that is that correct? Absolutely. I think it's this is very much a university problem. I think the NIH and NSF and other agencies can give guidance, but you know, as you said, it, every university has its own unique set of problems, and they're each going to have to figure out how to address them based on you know based on any number of factors. So that's. Uh, you know, a lot of the things that I've been thinking about is how can we recommend to universities uh, how to make various changes. And it keeps coming back to you know, what we mentioned just a little bit ago of these reports and recommendations that have been published for you know, 20, 30 years. Those recommendations are still prevalent. They're still uh, especially relevant during this time of uh, the pandemic because a lot of them can be adapted to uh, you know, how to recover from the pandemic. I also would think that... Uh, this situation that we're in now really just puts the uh, puts a point on what all the various reform groups have been doing, not just RBR, but also you know, Future of Research and other organizations. 
have been trying to do to reform the biomedical research workforce. And, you know, we keep pointing out that there are vulnerable populations in biomedical research who need specific changes to improve the lot for them. Uh, and this, this pandemic and the situation that research is in now really uh, exemplifies and has highlighted just how uh, at risk some of those populations are, whether it's grad students and postdocs, whether it's underrepresented minorities, whether it's uh, uh, people who are here on a visa. You know, they each have their unique uh, issues that they are facing in biomedical research, and they are accentuated uh, in this pandemic. So in a minute, we're going to talk about the exciting, you've got an exciting series that's coming up this week that kind mm-hmm. of is going to be addressing these things. But just before that, I want to go back to a point that you brought up. And you know, you mentioned that this is a, you know, uniquely in a lot of ways, a university problem. Um, and that groups like RBR and some of the other groups, you know, are working to help to recommend and provide guidance to the universities. Should it be a, so, should it be a university by university solution, you know, or is there the need for harmonizing a solution um, or providing some kind of boilerplate guidance that everyone can be doing roughly the same thing? Or does that, is there not a one size fits all, um, you know, in, in the country right now for, for working our way through this what, with regards to universities and grad students and, and, and laboratories and research, uh, research issues? Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think that there's a one size fits all approach to this. I think there are some things that could be done at a high level, like at the level of the NIH, that would help people at every university. I know there are some people who are uh, suggesting that all grants should just be extended for an entire year. So if your R01 normally goes for five years, it should be five, normally goes for five years, then it should go for six years yeah. uh, because of this. Right. And that would help people. It would relieve some of the funding pressures. So there are things like that that can be done. But I think when you look at the universities and the people in those universities, it's going to be a university by university decision. I think um, you know there are some universities that are very dependent on tuition, uh, and you know universities are making decisions in the next couple of weeks about the fall semester as our prospective students, right? Yeah. So if those students decide that you know I'm just going to defer for a year because I don't know what the university is going to be like because right. of this pandemic, or yeah. they're like. I'm just going to go online. Then the university isn't going to bring in that much intuition. Um, if they are dependent on an endowment, well, endowments are tied to the stock market, and the stock market just took a huge hit. So if half of your budget is based on your endowment, and the endowment just took a 20% hit, then you have a lot of serious decisions to make. Right. Um, so I think you know universities are going to be in their own positions based on their own finances, based on their own people and their own flexibilities. So the what I've been thinking about, you know, going back to these recommendations again, is to restate a lot of these recommendations in terms of how to recover from the pandemic. You know, it's one thing to say that we need more training grants and fellowships to support uh, students and postdocs, and I still think that's a good idea. But, you know, coming out of the pandemic, the NIH could institute maybe, you know, a, a two-year training grant or a two-year fellowship and just you know, have a lot of them for universities to apply for. And this would take some of the pressure off of universities and supporting their graduates and postdocs. It doesn't solve every problem, but there are things that can be adapted from previous reports to what's going on now to try to help universities out. Yeah. And one other thing is that, you know, the recommendations and things that will be coming out of uh, some of these efforts uh, are not meant to necessarily be implemented by every university. Administrators right now at universities have a lot of problems that they're trying to deal with. Um, and when they come back, when they relaunch operations, they're going to have a lot of different 
problems to deal with. The idea is to have these recommendations on hand so that they can look at them, figure out which ones work for them, and then move forward. Great, great. Yeah, it's it's really it, it in in a lot of ways there's kind of a forced hard restart that's happening. Um, yep. And so maybe that you know maybe that maybe that'll end up ultimately being an, an opportunity for us. So. Mm-hmm. I imagine that some of these thoughts, the thoughts that you've had, the conversations you've had, they're what's driving your effort that is uh, happening this week. And so you are holding a series of talks, I believe, titled Reforming the Biomedical Workforce in the Time of COVID-19. I'm wondering if you can tell my listeners more about that. Yeah, happy to. So this is actually born out of what I'm not hearing. Um, So there are, like I said, there are a lot of discussions about what people can be doing right now. and just going through Twitter or other social media sites, you can get a flavor of what people are concerned about. But that's not really diving deep on those issues. So I wanted to convene uh, a discussion series around various topics uh, to try to you know, bring in people from those constituencies and try to understand what they're thinking, what they're hearing, what they're concerned about, so that when we make recommendations, we're actually taking uh, the ideas and the concerns of these folks into account. So. Uh, what I'm hoping is that we're going to have a few people who are tied into these communities come and talk for you know, the first 15 to 30 minutes. And then uh, for the rest of the time, about another hour, we would have a discussion with people who have joined us to talk about you know, what we've already discussed, but also you know, to bring up things that we haven't thought about before. So it's really a way to hear from uh, you know, people from different constituencies. What's coming up this week is going to be a discussion on trainees. Um, I'm very excited about this, having been a biomedical research trainee uh, looking for graduate students and postdocs to to join us and even faculty members because they're they also have concerns about their uh, trainees um, and just talk about you know like i said the training grant issue that i just mentioned and a couple of other ways that we can improve uh, improve things for graduate students and postdocs um, we want to make sure that those are actually tied to uh, the fears and concerns that they're having right now so i want to hear more about those we're going to have future uh, discussions, one on pandemic preparedness, you know, how can universities be better prepared for the next pandemic? Um, uh, another one will be on faculty, uh, both early career faculty and mid-career and maybe even senior faculty. What are the troubles that they're facing? Because they yeah. are facing troubles. Um, and, you know, if a bunch of labs no longer exist and that significantly affects graduate students and postdocs. Right. Um, and and the, each, each different, you know, uh, younger faculty versus a mid-career faculty, there's such a wide variety of challenges that those groups have. They're, they're That's right. night and day differences. Absolutely. And then I'm excited we've just added a fourth session uh, on underrepresented minorities in biomedical research post-COVID-19. Um, as you and most of your listeners probably know, uh, different populations are getting hit differently by this sure. disease. Yeah. So what does that do to the, the scientists? What does that do to their families and their communities? And how does that change how they're viewing biomedical research on top of all their all the systemic biases that they already faced? Um, so uh, that's our plan for right now. It's going to go for four weeks starting on Thursday. And uh, we are, I'm open to extending it for longer. If there's more to get into, there's always more to talk about. But uh, uh, this is how we're starting it. And I'm very excited uh, about it. Is there a website? Uh, there is a sign-up form. If you go to my Twitter handle and look through that, I have pinned the tweet to the top of my page, and you can find the sign-up form there. We'll also have will... the 
to sorry to interrupt you. We'll also have we'll put the sign up form on our uh, on our little uh, little write up on, on what this is, so that people have it there. If you're on SoundCloud, you'll see it in the summary of this episode. It'll be there as well. Fantastic, thank you. And it will also be up on the Rescuing Biomedical Research website uh, shortly. And that website is that's rescuingbiomedicalresearch.org. Great. And so this is going to be starting on Thursday and extending for at it's got at least a four week running and. I would imagine that there's probably content to go much longer than four weeks. Yes, absolutely. I'm wondering, um, is there anything else you wanted to say about that? Cause it does really sound like a great opportunity. Now are the, is it, you said you're inviting some speakers to give kind of an intro talk and to kind of set the table on things, but then after that it's discussion, right? An open discussion mm-hmm. for people. So, um, is it a call in? Is it a webinar? How is the, just, sorry, the logistically, how is that happening? Yeah, this will be run through GoToMeeting. Okay. And so people will uh, be able to uh, come into the, the event and we'll be there on, you know, with our cameras on and talking about it. And we'll have uh, someone who is somewhat taking part in the conversation, but also monitoring the discussion to moderate it and unmute right. people when it's appropriate and make sure that uh, they have a chance to say something. Great. So it's a really democratized opportunity for people to kind of hear and ask questions and really engage in the, in the discussion, not, not just listen to it, but be a part of it. Absolutely. That's what we want. We want to hear from people to make sure that we're actually making recommendations and suggestions that reflect the needs of the community. Wanting to hear from the constituents. That's such a great concept. I like that. I like that. Um, Two questions that I've asked a lot of the people that I've interviewed for as I've been doing this. The first question is, what are challenges that you worry about that you see that aren't really getting attention or people aren't really talking or thinking about right now as a result of COVID? Yeah. Um, that's such a great question. It um, is, isn't it? It really is. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I just think the, everyone is thinking very short term and I understand that. Um, like I said earlier, we're living day to day, week to week. We don't know what next week will necessarily hold. You know, will schools be open? Will camps be open, et cetera? Um, that it's difficult to project in the future. But I think the problems I'm concerned about that people aren't addressing are those problems in the future that we can see coming if we take a moment to look for them. And if we think a little bit about how to address them, um, we can overcome them and make the re, the restart easier. Um, that's not specific issues, but it's the, it's more the long-term problems. Yeah that people aren't necessarily looking at right now. Yeah. There's a, there's a triage that's happening. Right. And so, you know, when I long ago, when I worked, um, worked on an ambulance, right. You came across a patient and the first three things you had to make sure was, you know, do they have an airway? Are they breathing? Is their blood circulating? Um, and right now Mm -hmm. it seems like we're, we're still as a nation working on making sure that we have those ABCs in place. Um, and then once you have that, now I need to look around and see what's the, what's the other damage that's not the life-threatening damage, but the damage that's going to have some long-term effects and start addressing those. And so I, exactly. Yeah. And I think, you know, that, you know, the fact that I, I can think about this and have launched this discussion session does suggest that I'm in a place where I can think that long-term. So I'm very lucky and appreciative of that and uh, definitely understand that. And others who want to get on and think about that long-term as well, um, more than welcome. I'd love to hear from you. Great. And the other question that I have is, we're all doing things a little bit differently now because of the pandemic and because we're working from our, you know, kitchen tables or, or, you know, just these different environments. Um, 
Have you seen any unique or creative ways to find a new normal or to do things that you think we can apply to kind of the, you know, regular life after the pandemic? And um, please don't say more Zoom meetings. <laughs> well, you took my answer. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think there are, I think there are a lot of those discussions starting. There was a, a recent preprint that came out about how to reform scientific meetings. Um, and I think there are a lot of ways that they can be, I mean, meetings are great because they're very democratic, but they can be even more democratized by having some more online components to them, right? Having people who just can't afford to travel to the meeting or for whatever reason can't travel um, and being able to include them. I think there are some, some of those discussions ha happening right now. And I think those are good. Um, I think, I think one thing that has come out of this has been, you know, people are starting to get a better sense of who are good mentors and who are not so good mentors. And I think that is going to be a discussion that carries forward. You know, the not so good mentors are the ones who are pressuring people to work, maybe even go to, into their labs when they shouldn't be. And the good mentors, you know, I just saw this on Twitter not too long ago. There's a, a PI who will get on a Zoom call with all of his trainees and then tell the trainees to go away and put their kids in front of the computer. And the PI reads them stories so that the parents, the trainees, can go and you know have time to themselves or do some writing or whatever. Um, you know, those are good mentors. Those are people who understand that scientists are people and yeah. there are other things that we have going on in our lives that we need help with. Um, and they come in to fulfill that need if, if necessary. Yeah. I like that. I think that's a, that's a good way to end this. It's a good way to be positive. Yeah. And so I, I like that. Um, yeah. Chris, I want to thank you very much for your time. Um, for your time and for, for all that you're doing. I know it's hard um, and you're dealing with a lot. And so I want to thank you for your time uh, for this interview. Absolutely. Thank you. And I want to thank you and the ASBNB for doing a lot of the things that you're doing because you've had a lot of great resources up there. And after you check out rescuingbiomedicalresearch.org, please do check out ASBNB because um, they have a lot of great things up there as well. Oh, I like that. Thanks so much, Chris. I appreciate that. No problem. To our listeners, thank you for listening. This has been another COVID-19 special issue of Pipettes and Politics.